Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Phoebe and Jade speak with Professor Rich Pankost, a geochemist, head of Bristol School of Earth Sciences and former director of the Interdisciplinary Cabot Institute, which explores how we depend on and shape our planet. They talk about the Cabot's value for bringing diverse experts together and how we should think of the climate issue as a social and ethical one, demanding profound adaptation beyond what can be captured in simple targets. As always, they start by asking Rich to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. Hi, I'm Rich Pankost. I'm the head of school in Earth Sciences. Before that, I was the director of the University of Bristol Cabot Institute for the Environment, and that was a fantastic job. I I got to work with all sorts of people across the entire university to develop interdisciplinary approaches to tackling all sorts of environmental challenges, climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, and and, and all sorts of things like that. So I love all sorts of different disciplines and how we work together. My own discipline is, is studying climate change, but through a geological perspective, how climate changed in the past and trying to learn from that how it might change in the future. So yeah, so I, I, I'm a bit of a geologist, a bit of a climate change scientist, but also maybe a bit of a, not necessarily a jack of all trades, but someone who's fascinated by all disciplines. Brilliant. So obviously you've had quite an extended career in earth sciences and then also climate change, but what did you start out doing at the beginning? Like what did you study before? Uh, as your degree? And how did you get to that position? Yeah. So that, that's, that's quite... Quite tricky. So I was a um, so so you can tell from the accent I'm American. So I, I went to a American style liberal arts university, and and I, I was torn between different things. I really love science, and I want to do I want to do planetary science or astrophysics because I love the Voyager missions. I love the planets, but I also like politics. And and in the U.S. system, you can like all those different things. And I eventually decided what I was going to do was I was going to try to merge the two. And geology was a great way to do that. I, I decided I, I would merge the two and study the sciences, and you could study all the sciences by studying geology, biology, and physics, chemistry, and all of that. And then when I was done, though, I would take that skill and I'd go off to uh, law school and be an environmental lawyer. Um, but two things prevented that. One was that graduate school didn't pay me a lot of money, but they did pay me, and law school I had to pay for. So I went with the financial imperative because I didn't have the money to go into debt further. Um, but also, once you do geology and you're walking around the mountains of Wyoming and you're walking through 500 million years of Earth history in a couple of days, law school seemed a little less exciting. So then I, I did my geology degree and then from that, it was a fairly boring, straightforward path. You know, I did a PhD, then I did a postdoc in the Netherlands, then I came here in 2000 as a geochemist, so I was actually coming to the chemistry department and, you know, in many ways just had a very typical academic career once I discovered that I really love studying geology. So what do you find the most interesting aspect of studying geology? What's the best part about your work? Wow, there's like a, all sorts of different ways. I mean, uh, there's an element of any sort of scientist, you know, where you, you get to discover something and you know something about the world for the first time, you know, whether you're a physicist or a chemist, there's something about that. But it seems more visceral when you're a geologist. You know, I, I got to go in submersibles down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, and I would see things there, you know, that no human had ever seen before. That's amazing. And um, there's something about discovering like a new fossil or a new molecule or, or something new about the climate of the past, where you're sort of saying you're learning something the, about how the world was like a hundred million years ago. And for a brief moment of time, nobody knows that. 
only you. You, you, you discover something completely new. And, and, and because geology is so much about space and time and, and, and how we live on this planet, it has that visceral excitement that you're learning something quite fundamental about, about who we are because you've learned something very fundamental about the planet we live on. So as much as obviously geology is a lot about the past mm. and sometimes, I mean, I've studied a bit of geology um, in mm. my first year of civil engineering and I found it really interesting but quite difficult to relate to because it was mm. so distant that right. I was like, how can I use this in my current yeah. life? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and we're doing a little bit of interesting sort of thinking about that as a discipline. So, so, so much of geology is very much about your current life. So, so if we think about some of the major themes in the discipline, one of the major themes will be natural hazards. So important to, to how we, you know, how we live on this planet, especially as we build cities, as we build infrastructure. Um, we need to understand the hazards of, of volcanoes, of earthquakes, of tsunamis and such. Um, geologists also study current climate change and environmental change. You know, it's geologists who are off studying you know, the, the chemical changes in, in the ocean, They're just studying what's happening to the ice sheets. Um, so we're studying those critical climate change and environmental problems that are so important for addressing food security uh, um, and, and tackling climate change. And also as geologists, although we're going to have to learn to do this in a more environmentally and socially just way, we're the ones who find and study how to extract resources from our planet. In the past, we were the ones who found the oil and gas and coal deposits. We're going to move away. We have to move away from fossil fuels, but our new renewable energy system is going to require copper, lithium, cobalt. So we're going to have to acquire those resources in an ethical and a sustainable way. So geologists are right at the center of those big environmental sustainability challenges and, and that's very exciting what i think is interesting about the wider discipline say those of us who you know study you know did dinosaurs have feathers or the origin of the earth or the origin of the moons of saturn and such which maybe don't have the applied relevance is that i think those aspects of geology inform the others they, they help us understand with a certain degree of humility our place in the history of earth our, our place in the solar system and although they're not applied, I think the applied work that geologists do somehow has resonance and, and respect of the planet we, we live on because we know so much about the history of it and, and how unique it is. That is a very interesting perspective. I've never, I've never thought about it that way before. I think now is sort of a good time to introduce and bring in the cabinets mm -hmm. to this. And do you mind telling us a bit more about your previous role instead of it and how exactly the cabinet institute needs to inform public policy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, so the Cabot Institute will, will be visible to, to, to some of your listeners and you in all sorts of different ways. It, it's it's an institute, it's a research institute, and, and there's a several of those in the university. Um, so it has a more tangential interaction with with students. I would say that that you know mostly the way students and people in Bristol will see us is through the events that you know you would put on, the events we would host, and all of that type of thing. But the real purpose of Cabot when it was formed <clears throat> was to get people from different disciplines together to come up with new ways of working, new ideas, new ways of collaborating. And sometimes I would be a social scientist with a scientist. Sometimes I would be a scientist with an engineer. Sometimes I would be a scientist with an engineer with someone from the public um, or someone from the political sphere or an NGO. So it's, it's about getting those different groups of people who have different intellectual expertise out of their silos, 
coming together and coming up with solutions to problems we face. So a lot of that is maybe invisible at times, but so many of your engineering lectures will have disappeared off into cabinet at times um, to have a maybe it was a transformative conversation with a social scientist, or maybe it was just a weird conversation with a social scientist of trying to break down barriers of language, find new ways of communicating, new ways of collaborating. But that's what Cabot's always been about, is to break down the silos of the university, get people to come and work together in new and exciting ways, and sometimes you get them together and the sparks fly, and sometimes not, and, and that's okay. Um, so that's always been our mission, is, is, is to create new solutions that emerge from new ways of thinking about problems because you've gotten out of your disciplinary silos. You asked about the public policy aspect of it, and that is part of it. There is a bit when you have this collective body of expertise, you do want to sort of engage with decision makers and, and such. You know, and when I was cabinet director, it coincided with, with when Bristol was the green capital. So although it wasn't my plan originally, I've, I've happened to interact with a lot of more local uh, uh, policymakers, uh, Bristol councillors and mayors and such, um, whereas colleagues have worked, you know, collaborated more on an international or national level. And that's really, really, really important. Um, and it's an, um, it's an aspect of what Cabot does, but I think it's, that is increasingly an aspect of what almost everybody in the university is doing anyway, is trying to engage with who needs their knowledge. Um, so Cabot helps that and facilitates that. I would say the real value of Cabot is that that more behind the scenes of bringing people together and, and, and forming more, more um, uh, new ideas to create new solutions. And with coming up with those new ideas and obviously working with people from completely different mm. disciplines, um, have you found any like specific challenges or like any, obviously the great mm. ideas, like the light bulb idea, have you got any examples of when yeah. that's happened? So I often find that um, there's very few light bulb ideas. Um, what what the light bulb is is a spark between two people. What what really so so, so the barriers are there's sometimes language barriers. We might use the same words in different disciplines to describe completely different things. We might just talk about things in different ways. Um, even sometimes in um, in earth sciences, sometimes even our seismologists sort of find themselves talking across purposes with um, geotechnical engineers, even though those are not that far apart. So, so there's all sorts of, um, you know, just barriers to, um, uh, to having a conversation. Then there's different barriers in terms of how we work. Social scientists, they don't work through large research groups. Um, they tend, you know, they don't hire postdocs. One of my favorite stories from the early days of Cabot is that there was a social scientist and a scientist. They were having a great conversation. They were very, very excited. And they were very excited about working together. And at the end of the conversation, the scientist said, right, let's write a grant and, we'll, and I'll get a postdoc and you'll get a postdoc and, and we'll do it. And the social scientist was a bit taken aback because they basically said, well, wait, 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 I thought, I thought we wanted to work together. Why are we hiring postdocs to do this? Why aren't we working together? So there's all sorts of different ways of working, different funding and such that creates those barriers. But at the end of the day, what I really realized, and this is why I drank a whole lot of coffee in Boston Tea Party when I was cabinet director, was um, the real barrier, but also the real mechanism by which you overcome the barrier is that two people just spark off of each other. They, they, whether it's a common interest, a common passion, um, 
you know, maybe it's not the research that they do, but but a shared long-term agenda of where their research might go. Or maybe they just get along with each other really well. So it's a lot of conversations with people and trying to do a lot of matchmaking. And it's tricky, right? You can't do that with websites. And you can't do that with papers uh, because that tells you about the past. That tells you about what someone did already. It doesn't tell you what someone wants to do next year or in five years' time. So that's a bit of an art of trying to match, make, bring people together and see where the sparks fly. And in that context, the light bulbs, they often don't turn on for five or six years. Um, and often you, it's hard to trace. You know, we might get two people together and that might stimulate a great collaboration that lasts for a couple of years. But then the offspring of that collaboration is that one of the people goes and works with a different social scientist or a different person who's a scholar of arts and humanities. And that collaboration is the, where the light bulb happens. So it's very, very, it's very much reflective of how science actually happens. You know, it's not like Darwin and Einstein anymore. It's not great men who have one great idea. It, it's through collaboration and iteration and exploration. Um, we've had some great ideas. I mean, one of the great ones was um, some of our nuclear physicists and some of our you know, chemists working together and coming up with a way to convert radioactive graphite into diamonds. And if you think about that, what you mean is that you've now got a diamond battery with a half-life of 6,000 years. Right? That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. I'm telling us a bit more about those light bulb moments and other amazing inventions. Yeah. Well, I think you know, you know, that, that's one of the classic inventions. And, you know, and to be fair, you, know, you wouldn't really call that truly interdisciplinary because it's physicists working with chemists. Um, that's probably my favorite invention. You know, one of the, the areas that I've been most familiar with is where you've ended up with scientists working with um, people from the arts faculty, around, you know, historians and cultural scholars. So for example, there's people in my school who study volcanology. But if you want to understand volcanic risk, you want to have a history of volcanic eruptions. Well, that's all well and good for places like Europe, but there's other parts of the world where there's no, you know, there's, you know, not necessarily good historical records. Well, there are good historical records. If you work with someone from the School of Modern Languages who knows how to access those archives that are written in Spanish or Portuguese. So yeah, so there's all this sort of um, fantastic collaboration there. We have other people who are interested in seismic risk. Sure, sometimes they work with engineers. Sometimes they work with cultural scholars. And the cultural scholar was able to sort of open new relationships and new conversations with, um, say, um, monasteries, with Buddhist monasteries. And, and basically, they would then have these both written and oral records of ancient earthquakes and things like that to be able to unpick and how uh, what happened. And by doing that, they could open up a, a conversation about the resilience that people have to those and, and how communities come together and adapt to those. So as you're moving away from just a scientific explanation to tapping other archives of information and by virtue of that building new relationships that would you know that were quite essential to developing resilience strategies. All all sorts of interesting things like that. I've you know we have other people who are interested in marine ecology and they've worked with engineers about um, whether ocean acidification will destabilize coral reefs in terms of their structure. We talk about the coral reefs dying, but also what happens to their structural integrity under a more acidic ocean. We have people who were working with um, um, 
marine ecosystems, collaborating with um, lawyers on you know making sure that the that the science was correctly underpinning policies on marine protected areas. So yeah, so very, all sorts of things all all over the map. Um, you mentioned inventions, yeah, I, I, not not lots of inventions, I, you know, but but I'm sure there's many many inventions coming on the way. So do you think? Um, we're still in quite a young phase of the Cabot Institute and by forming it, it's not so much about what you're creating, it's about kind of culture mm. collaboration that I guess even myself, like we're both, well, you as well Jay, we're both in engineering but I already feel like I'm very much in mm. my type of engineering yeah. and I think for the future specifically, like we definitely need more collaboration, mm. we don't want to see, you know, knowledge is is shared with everyone and yes. we don't just get everything from what we've studied. I, I think all all of my time that I've been in the Cabot Institute, the, that's probably been the, the number one comment that, that, that I had when I, whenever I was talking to any, any students, but particularly undergraduate students. PhD students have a lot more freedom to sort of bounce around the university and such. Um, and that comment is a variation of what you said, which is, this is great. It sounds like a cultural change in how academics are working together. Um, why not do the same thing for our education? And I, I think that is going to be one of the next big projects of us as a university. And it somewhat transcends the Cabot Institute. I think it, it, it cuts across all sorts of things. But it's how we make all of our education um, somewhat more interdisciplinary. How, how does it bring in the skills and knowledge of expertise of other disciplines that, that, that are absolutely necessary for it. And you know, you don't necessarily need to have an entire 10 credit point unit taught by a social scientist. But I don't but I think you also need more than maybe a social scientist to come in and give one token guest lecture in one of your units as well. So I think it's finding that sweet spot where where we organically and naturally can inject these other disciplines into your courses to give them that added value and, and so that you've got a bit of a wider perspective on it. I personally would love the 10 credit unit talk about it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there should definitely be more interdisciplinary mm. collaboration and more dialogue between yeah. all the participants because we're human beings. You know, mm. We're not just like an engineer and not all like a social scientist. We're, we're everything and you need to be everything as a human being. Well, right, right. You know, and, and, and of course, you guys are engineers. You're obviously, you know, you're either you know, building things for people or, or you're helping people manage the risks that they face. How, how do you take the human element out of engineering? It's, it's essential. Um, you know, I was talking earlier about the, the central role of the earth sciences in providing the resources for the future. Well, okay, we need to recognize the environmental and social justice implications of that. But you need to go a lot further than just recognizing it. You need real social science expertise about the legal structures in the countries you're working, but also whether or not you know you could be working with another country, very ethical from that point of view, but what if that country is enacting policies that are exploiting indigenous communities in there? You need to have people who know these things with the same degree of expertise that you know about the rocks or that you know about the engineering. You're going to get me going off on this now because it's a bit of my. It's a very much a, a comes from my American education bias, and there's not a lot of things that, especially right now, that are going that are better in America than here. But I do think the thing about the liberal arts education is you study a whole wide range of things. You know, in my own story, I was able to like jump from astrophysics to international politics a couple of times back and forth before settling on doing geology as a degree. And even when I was doing geology as a degree, my minor was international studies. 
And I also get to take electives in film theory. So yeah, I, I think I don't think we're going to make that fundamental transformation. But if we can make a few steps towards bringing, you know, organically bringing more of this interdisciplinary approach into your education, I think that would be really, really helpful. Yeah, no, I completely agree with everything you just mm. said, basically. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think going back to something you mentioned earlier, one key word that stood out to me, and that was resilience. Mm. What does that mean to you in a sort of climate perspective as well as... Ah. Well, resilience is like... That's a complicated term. And this, and again, you know, I, I don't think I would know how complicated it was if I hadn't had the privilege of, of working in the Cabot Institute of working with engineers and social scientists. So on one level, we know now with climate change that we have a mitigation challenge, we have to minimize climate change, and we have an adaptation resilience problem, right? We're, we're, all of our treaties, even Greta, are saying 1.5 degrees. Well, we've already warmed the world by one degree. This is another half degree. We're, we're going to have to live in a world at least one and a half degrees warmer, maybe two degrees warmer. So there has to be some conversation around adaptation and resilience. So we have to think about how, how, how we respond to this change. Where it becomes problematic is who's talking about it. So if, if um, those who are causing climate change, those who are relatively privileged, those who are not the most impacted by climate change are talking about how someone else has to be resilient, how someone else has to adapt, that's really problematic. It, it's us continuing our lifestyles and expecting someone else to deal with the consequences. Um, and given the fact that it's mostly marginalized um, and neglected groups that are most impacted by it, there's, there's racist dimensions to it, right, and classist dimensions. It will be poor, it'll be the global south, and we've even seen with natural disasters, it's often like the minorities in our own countries that are most affected by these things. So that's where, where this concept of, of resilience and, and adaptation has to you know, begin to get quite problematic. So I think resilience has to be owned by the people. So, you know, so if, you know, it has to be owned by the people who are doing the adapting. And that means they not only have to have, um, you know, uh, be doing the adapting, but they have to be given the resources, the power, the decision making. You have to devolve power. If that means us providing resources to them, um, if that means us listening to them, that that has to be part of the resilience equation. Now, if you get there, then then perhaps it's not quite as problematic a space, and you know, and people feel empowered to to have their own solutions. And the key thing about resilience then that will distinguish it from previous conversations around adaptation is it's not about stopping the risk, right? It won't necessarily be how do we stop something from flooding. That might be part of it, but it might be how do we recover from flooding? How do we adapt to it? You know, and, and maybe it's a move away from just building higher and higher walls and something to actually building different types of cities and infrastructure that is more adaptable, that recovers quickly. You let the floods come in and then you move right back and when the floods are out. Um, so I think there's a lot of dimensions to resilience that, that we spent a lot of time unpacking um, in this city and, and in, in Cabot and, and the university. And I don't think we ever got to a clear answer. But I've always felt that the key elements were is you have to give people power. The power has to allow them flexibility. Um, and from that, it has to allow a great deal of creativity and freedom. So, so that's different than, you know, from, say, previous ways of looking at things of adaptation, which is prevention-orientated. The thing with um, climate change and basically that obviously 
in the Western world, mm. we are very privileged. And I think even though yeah, our summers might be getting warm, mm. I think we're still kind of a bit ignorant. Mm. So I've had this discussion with my friends before where we've been lucky enough that, you know, mm. because of the Industrial Revolution, we've been able to become as developed as mm. we are. And but at the same time, obviously, have a huge detriment to the right. planet. But how do you tell a country that hasn't had that chance right. that they're not? How are they supposed to prosper without going through that phase? Because are they just supposed to skip it, or like, yeah. how are they supposed to get to the same stage that we are? Absolutely, without yeah. hurting the planet. Basically. Exactly, and I think you know, there's all sorts of interesting social justice dimensions. And if we look at you know the history of climate treaties there's always been a, a fairly clear demarcation between different types of, you know, there's been sort of category one, category two, category three countries. And with that, different obligations to decrease their, their emissions and such. Um, that changed in, in the COP21, the Paris Agreement. Basically, it just said, well, actually, we've waited too long. Every, you know, the crisis is too big. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody just has to decrease emissions as fast as they can. Just everybody has to do it. We've waited too long and such. But I think the reason that that was able to go through and was perceived as perhaps less uh, ethically problematic than it would have been in the, in the past is that um, a lot of those countries were beginning to see the huge opportunity coming from this. And they're actually thinking, thinking actually, if we're going to develop, we want to develop with all these emerging renewable technologies. We don't want to develop with archaic and old fossil fuel resources that will make us indentured to other countries and their, their resources already. So I think there was a, a shift in the technology that empowered them to, um, to accept that, that new, new way of thinking about things. But you're absolutely right. The, the framing of a question is essential. It, it's all around justice. Um, and I would still argue that many of the debates we have are social justice dimensions. You know, flying is a really good example. It's only a very small part of the carbon footprint. It's only something like 2%. However, it's a 2% that is owned almost exclusively by the white and wealthy of the world. So it's not really that stopping flying is essential to resolving the climate crisis, but it's emblematic of the, of the profound injustice of who is using up the last of our carbon budget. So if we say that only 2% um, of our carbon emissions come from flying. Where does the remaining 98% come from? Is it from mm. corporations or individuals and whose responsibility is it? Oh, wow, that's it. Yeah, you guys are just asking me all sorts of questions that cause me to ramble on endlessly. <laughs> so yeah, so, so, um, so the big sectors is, you know, it, it is energy, um, heating and electricity. In the UK, it's important to distinguish the two because switching to renewable electricity is probably a little bit more straightforward than retrofitting 80% of our homes so that, there's, so that they're not gas anymore. But energy is a, is a big one. Transport is a big one, not just our own transport with cars, but also the whole global supply chain and all of that. Um, and agriculture is, is another big one. I mean, of course, there's also manufacturing is a big one. So, so those, those are all sort of the main ones that we play with. And that's why we're often talking about the nature of our diets. It's where we're talking about the nature of how we move around the world, how we get around, and it's how we're talking about how we procure energy. Um, the more challenging aspect of your question is um, whose responsibility is it? Um, and it's, it's all of ours. You know, it, oil and gas and, and coal are amazing fuels. It's not just electricity. I was mentioning the, the diamond battery before. I mean, you know, we first told about this, everybody's like, it'll solve all of our problems. Well, no, it's a, it's a battery. It can maybe power a drone or a laptop. It provides electricity, you know, if you convert it to that. 
but it doesn't provide power, not like burning oil does. And so there's a reason why it took a while to get a, an electric car. And there's a reason why it took longer to get an electric truck or an electric tractor or an electric plane, because you need power. And what I'm getting at is that we have built our entire civilization on this amazing source of energy and power. So how can it be up to an individual to change it? You know, what, what, why make individuals feel guilty when the entire system is fossil fuel based? You know, it's, you, you can't escape from it because everything is fossil fuel based. I often make the point, it's like, well, not only is your car burning fossil fuels, but it took a lot of fossil fuels to make your bicycle. So I think your know, system change led from the highest levels of government is essential. It doesn't let us off the hook as individuals. And by individuals, I mean both us as people, but I also mean things like in the middle, like organizations, companies, the University of Bristol. I think all of these entities all have a role to play. Um, and our role as individuals is, first of all, to make every little difference that we can. Every little bit helps. But also to do so in a way that that builds the conversation, that builds the movement, that empowers the governments to make the system change. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit about putting your money where your mouth is and, and or walking the, walking the talk, um, but it's also a little bit about normalizing the behavior of this new world. Normalizing taking the bicycle rather than driving the car. Normalizing eating a low meat diet rather than a high meat diet. It's about that. So I think individual action is absolutely essential. I just won't name and shame people for their individual choices that are dictated by a huge range of things, knowing that we are all basically trapped in a fossil fuel society that, that, you know, that has created a lot of things, but now has to change. I, I, have, I, have, I have no patience for either despair or hope. hope. Hope is sort of like a, is not an action. Optimism, determination, that, that I have, but just hoping I don't have time for that. Nor do I have time for despair, because again, that's that's rather disempowering. But okay, that's easy to say. What what actually sits underneath those? Obviously, with many of these things, we've made progress. We've just not made enough progress. You know, CO2 emissions continue to climb every year. But our forecast might have been is that they should have been climbing by more than they have. So you know, we've begun to have impacts. Renewable energy is growing faster than we thought. People's diets are changing faster than we thought. Um, it's not going anywhere near fast enough to hit our targets of one and a half degrees or two degrees, but things are happening, and they've been happening for 10 or 20 years. Nowhere near fast enough, but they are happening. And that gives us signs of hope. Um, it gives us signs of reason for optimism. But the flip side, of course, is that as we've tried to motivate this this action to become faster, we spend a lot of time talking about the particularly dramatic consequences of not going fast enough. Um, we've seen the climate strikes by the youth and we've seen Extinction Rebellion and those are great initiatives. But the language that's been used to motivate faster action can lend itself to despair. I'm a big fan of what XR is doing, but I'm not a big fan of their name. You know, I think extinction is actually quite useful because species will go extinct, Cultures will go extinct as sea level rises. It's fair enough to talk about an extinction problem, but often people begin to think, but civilization will collapse. We will go extinct. And I think that is too much doom and despair. That's too much capitulation. And there's already signs that people who used to practice climate denial are now moving to, it's all terrible, but it's too late to do anything, so let's just carry on. 
We have to have determination. And as a scientist who studies climate change, that determination is entirely justified. We've picked one and a half and two degree targets for very, very good reasons. They give us impetus, they give us motivation, they drive us. But there's not much of a scientific justification for two degrees versus 2.1 versus 2.5. Two degrees is, a, is better than two and a half degrees. Two and a half degrees, though, is still better than three degrees. And three degrees is better than three and a half degrees. Also, three degrees with a restoration of global habitats that minimize the biodiversity crisis is better than three degrees plus deforestation and mammoth devastation to our, our, you know, our ecological systems. So there's everything to fight for, everything to fight for. And you know, coming back to the comment about individual behavior, you know, that's why every individual action does make a difference even if society doesn't limit global warming to two degrees. And this is such an important thing because I think the narrative around extinction and doom disempowers the young generation that has been so important for mobilizing this in the past. Because basically, if you view this as an all or nothing game, two degrees or nothing, you've taken all of your future power away. You've basically said who you are in 10 or 20 years as leaders, as members of industry, as, as engineers who are tackling these problems is irrelevant. It is relevant. You guys will have power, you'll have influence, you'll be dealing with whatever world we have left you, but you will have the power to make a difference in that world, to manage that world, to make sure it's ethical and just. Your generation, if we really don't hit our climate targets, and we're dealing with a world that's two and a half degrees warmer, and we're dealing with displaced populations because of sea level rise and engines climate, your generation will still have the power to decide how we treat those climate refugees. Your generation will have the power to decide how we will redistribute food resources if food resources become more scarce. Your power will, your generation will have the power to decide whether or not you will meet these crises with conflict or peace and cooperation. So there is a great deal of power and opportunity, but it's not going to come from just hoping for it. We're going to, ha we're going to have to struggle for it and we're going to have to work together for it. That, that's why I think determination and optimism is key to, to the future, and, and, I, and I get very frustrated whether it's sort of the doomers or the denialists trying to take away the power, especially from you guys. So obviously, um, the fear is that fossil fuels will run out, mm. and that the climate will get so bad that we'll just inevitably, like you said, go extinct. Mm. What would you say to someone that who believed or even mm. questioned the idea that this was all inevitable? Because if you look at history. Mm. Like when people first started using fossil fuels, there was nothing to stop them. If that makes mm. sense. Like, yeah, yeah. What would you say to someone who thought this was like an inevitable process Absolutely. of like, and humans are just one species on the earth. If we go extinct, then there'll be another planet. Mm. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just really, I, yeah. I don't know what I think about it, but I'm just curious. No, it, and and you know, because and, and you're asking that question because this conversation is now percolating into the whole climate change debate. It wasn't there 20 years ago, but now this is sort of hovering around the edges and. People are thinking about those types of issues. And, and I sort of have two answers for that. And one is every individual needs to come to their, you know, to their own terms, their own bits of uh, their own peace with whatever they think is going to happen. And I think just as it's a bit unfair for me to um, dictate, you know, and tell people, you, you must not fly, you must do this, you must not do this. It's also a bit unfair for me to tell an individual who is trying to mourn what they think is inevitable and find some sort of emotional peace with that to dictate what they should believe about that, if they believe it. However, my other answer is when 
you try to infect more people with that fear and that doom complex. Then I'm going to try to intervene a little bit because you know that is an opinion and that's a belief system, but there's no evidence for it. If you begin to untrack what would happen with this, you know, we will warm the planet by a lot. But even burning all the fossil fuels, even with all sorts of climate tipping point feedbacks, it would be very, very hard for us to warm the planet as much as it was, say, 50 million years ago. Now, the switch to the world of today, to a climate of 50 million years ago, is very disruptive to society, but it's not an uninhabitable planet. Life was doing great. So it's not inevitable from the science that we all die. So where does this whole narrative come from? Well, it comes from the fact that, well, society collapses, there's not enough food, we all fight, we all argue. And that is a real concern. But again, as I was saying before, that's not a foregone conclusion. So if you, as an individual, have a particularly cynical view of the world and you're looking around not just at the climate emergency, but also the rise of populism and all sorts of things that make you despair, I, I understand that, I appreciate that, and I, and I won't try to argue away from that belief system. But I think as a movement, we can't embrace that because there's not evidence that that will happen. So I have no desire to accept that as an inevitability as a collective movement. Does that answer that question? That's a particularly difficult one. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about it much recently. It's just that I was reading Sapiens over Christmas, mm. and he's a historian, the right. author. And it was saying a lot about how history can't be predicted. Mm. So I was thinking, things that we think are inevitable now, whatever happens, I guess, in, from a historian's perspective, right. there's no, they haven't found a way to justify how things happen. Right. So it made me see it in a different way. And that, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what my opinion is. Yeah. No, I, I think you would find that many of the people who really reject that sort of inevitable societal collapse narrative will be... People, you know, people from the humanities, historians, cultural scholars, uh, geographers, uh, anthropologists, and the thing is, and the reason they will do it is because it, it imposes this cold determinism on us as individuals and us as society. It says that if this happens, it is inevitable that we will fight, that we will go to war, that we will kill one another, and those things are not inevitable. So, so, so I suspect, you know, it sounds like actually. I have to go read that. That sounds like a really, really interesting you, book. Yeah, you definitely really, really like it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest, is that, you know, it's it's the ethical dimensions that always fuel my fire, that get me out of the bed in the morning when I'm feeling a bit despairing. And and it is, it's it's the fact that um, everybody will be impacted by climate change and environmental degradation, but not all the same. And and it, and it is an ethical issue. And, it, and it's some people, and the people who generally are doing the least amount of damage, will be the one to, that experience the most harm. And, and that, that is something that you know, can motivate you to do every little bit. That, I mean, I, I suppose it's another reason why um, the whole doom narrative frustrates me a little bit because it's, it feels like it's doing a little bit of an all lives matter type of narrative on something that is really a, a social justice component where some people really, really will suffer more and we need to recognize those those social justice dimensions when we're thinking about our obligations to act. So yeah, so it's yeah, so it's like, I feel like well, it might even be useful. Maybe it's a bit too in your face, but if when you bought something, they told you like, yes, mm. but like if I knew the person's life that I was affecting, like, right, like right. someone who's being forced to work in factory, yeah. I think yeah. that would affect my decision more. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I don't know. That's just my how we, I think. I guess. We know that worked with things like you know. Dolphin safe tuna, you know, this, this sort of 
visceral market, you know, you know, building this into people's day-to-day lives, you know, it would make a difference. It's interesting, one of the things that I found is almost universal um, when I was a cabbage director is that if you're talking about how do you get sustainable fisheries, and you'd have a conversation that would include fishermen, main comment was people are disconnected from, you know, they don't go catch the fish themselves. Talking about most sustainable agricultural systems, people would say people don't raise the beef themselves, they don't raise the crops themselves. Or scientists, you know, people don't mine the resources themselves. And it's that disconnection from where everything is coming from that I think allows us to just spend and consume and consume and consume. Um, we, we should probably put on every mobile phone that we buy, there should be a note that says, this phone contains a lithium cobalt battery. 15% of the cobalt in the world comes from child labor. And, and again, you know, maybe that just says, you know what, I'm going to wait another six months before replacing my phone. And, and, and I think, you know, the, I, I, I think what is exciting about the conversation right now is that it is a conversation. It's now infecting all of our lives. We're, it, it's now, people are talking about a lot more, a lot more. That's great. But we can go a few steps further. I think it, it needs to be a persistent part of our lives so that we can't escape from it or hide from it or forget about it when it's convenient to do so. It's been really great speaking to you, and I think I learned a lot from that discussion. Great, thanks. Engineers are right at the heart of all of these you know, solutions, so go good luck with the rest of your degrees and, and, and go do something awesome for the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch, or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.